High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a historical conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Winston Churchill famously said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? We are failing to learn from history, from the history of big tobacco and opioid prescriptions as it applies to big marijuana. Here's the playbook. Number one, health claims. Step two, normalizations, commercialization, and increased potency. Step three, health harms are denied or hidden. Step four, health harms are finally acknowledged with public outrage. And finally, it all comes crashing down with lawsuits. We saw this happening with tobacco, lawsuits, and opioid lawsuits. And here's what's happening with marijuana. Step one, health claims. It's a plant. It's natural. It helps people relax. It's good for anxiety. And hey, no one dies of one puff. That's what was said with tobacco. And now it's copied for marijuana. Marijuana is now pushed as medicine, although we currently have FDA-approved THC and CBD. The plant of marijuana is promoted to help people with AIDS and end-of-life care, who we should have compassion for. But it goes further to help people with seizures and fibromyalgias and colitis and pain and all sorts of diseases without the data to back it up. It sounds like Big Pharma's claims with opioids when they pushed high-dose opioids, not just for cancer, but long-term use for any pain. And several state politicians are now playing doctor with lists of diagnoses of which marijuana is considered healthy without the consensus of the FDA or medical establishment. Step two. Normalization, commercialization, and potency. Everyone's doing it. Billboards, websites, social marketing is all over the place. Everywhere we go, we see marijuana and even smell it. Even Hollywood movies have normalized pot like they did for tobacco. During the pandemic, churches and gyms were closed, but the marijuana industry was considered an essential service in California. Children are targeted with advertisements, flavors, candies, drinks, Way worse than Joe Camel ever did to encourage kids to smoke. Getting a marijuana medical card is as easy as getting opioids from a pill mill. And with the same lack of medical scrutiny and quietly, the marijuana that voters approved no longer exists. The plant has been genetically modified for increased potency. 
This is what we saw with nicotine, with doses going up to increase addiction, and with opioid limits creeping up. A 1991 gram joint had 50 milligrams of THC. Today's joint is four times more potent at 200 milligrams. The dabs, shatters, oils, and vape products can have over 90% THC. The high-potent weed has the clinical effects of illicit methamphetamines. Step three is denial of health claims. Americans today realize that they were duped when it came to tobacco. The healthcare community acknowledges they drank the Kool-Aid when they were told addiction to prescription opioids is rare. But right now, the harmful effects of marijuana is being buried. Addiction can be up to 50% for people starting at a young age and using high-potency THC. Emergency department visits for cannabis-related diagnosis is rising in adults and children in the thousands of percentage points. People have died of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, associated suicide, cannabis-associated accidents, and cannabis-associated heart conditions. The American Heart Association warns of risks of heart attack and strokes. The American Lung Association warns on the risk of tobacco and vaping. As tobacco is a risk factor for emphysema and cancer, so is marijuana a risk factor for testicular cancer, schizophrenia, and bipolar. The Bradford Hill criteria was used for tobacco to prove that tobacco is causing cancer and emphysema and not just an association. This causation versus correlation approach for the Bradford Hill criteria has been applied to THC to show that marijuana, THC, is an independent risk factor for psychosis and can cause psychosis, not just associated with it. Furthermore, we can prevent up to 30% of cases of schizophrenia in men aged 21 to 30 if they never used marijuana. These well-established risks are documented in hundreds of large scientific publications, but why do people not know about it? Step four, acknowledgement of and outrage of harms. This is starting to hit some public and communities, and it's just a matter of time before we get to step five, the lawsuits. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, High Truth listeners. This is Lauren Lee, Dr. Lev's number two son and listener to this and many other podcasts. When I heard that Dennis Prager was going to be on my mother's podcast, I was filled with nahat and asked to be able to present the introductory question. With Dr. Lev as my mother, the topic of drugs and addiction is often present at our dinner table. We discuss that in society, it seems that there is a concerted push to normalize the usage of all manner of drugs, including marijuana, psychedelics, and other harder substances. In parallel, it also seems that there is a rise in mental health issues, especially among the young. So my question is this, are these topics related? Is this part of a larger societal shift, political, profiteering, or other sort of agenda? And how can we, what can we do to prevent these influences on our children? Oren, what a joy to have my son, the father of my precious granddaughter, ask a question for the show. Being a career mom, I always told my kids, the most important job I have in the whole world is being your mom. And I am so proud to be your mother. You're right, Oren. Week after week, you and your beautiful wife, Chava, host us for Friday night dinner, and the conversation focuses on Torah or Bible, and once in a while, the conversation can slip into the issue of drugs. 
To join the drug conversation today, I am beyond excited to host a great, influential American thinker, writer, and speaker, the one and only Dennis Prager. You know, the more famous a person is, the shorter their bio needs to be. It's enough to say Dennis Prager, but I want to remind our listeners that Dennis Prager is co-founder and president of Prager University, one of the most widely viewed video sites in the world with a billion views a year. He's a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, columnist, and author of 10 books, most recently, The Rational Bible, the best-selling Bible commentary in America. I bought it, and I give it out as gifts, and you should too. To learn more about Dennis Prager, check out the High Truth show notes. Dennis Prager, welcome to High Truths. Well, it is truly a pleasure. And I, 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 I debated with you and in myself, do I call you Ronnie? do I call you Dr. Lev? So I'm going to do both. All right. And then I asked you back, Dennis or Mr. Prager? And I think I've earned my age to say Dennis, so I'm glad about that. It's a great <laughs> pleasure. Yeah. So you had a book, um, The Eight, or you still have the book. It used to be The Eight Questions People Ask About Judaism. Then it was The Nine Questions About Very few about people know the original title. Right. Well, I bought The Eight, and then I had to buy The oh, Nine. Seriously, you must have been in high school. <laughs> I'm serious. If you maybe knew so. Eight Questions, because... Uh, well, I was 15 in college, so maybe that's why. Right. Well, you you were, yeah, you were, you would have been in 15. I, I wrote it a long time ago. I, uh, I'm very proud of that book uh, because it became the the most uh, the best-selling English introduction to Judaism, and it's still in print, and it's still read, and it's still bought, and I know exactly why it's uh, it was successful. Like everything else I do, especially with regard to religion, I I use reason. It's why my Bible commentary, I'm up to the fourth volume, uh, it's called The Rational Bible. Reason is my vehicle uh, to uh, everything, even faith in God. Reason is my vehicle. And those, those are the books that I buy as gifts to people. Well, wow, you made my day. Yeah. Sounds great. Okay, I'm going to like jog your memory as well, because you used to advertise for Carbonite. I don't know if you remember that, but I like... Yes, bought, I the, bought uh, that. the backup I bought that. Like, enter Prager and you get a $5 discount. <laughs> uh, That's so. all my name got you is a $5 <laughs> discount. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, I actually met you many years ago at Chabad of Poway, and I know that that's how you met your wife, Sue, but I don't know if it's the same Chabad. Um, but was that, it Poway? La Costa. La Costa. La Costa. So I, I met you in Poway, and that um, that Chabad was sadly um, the, the victim of oh, a shooting, right. and I lost my very best friend, Lori, which I think about it. Really? Oh, yeah. my God. So... Yeah, but anyway, I'm just delighted, delighted to have you here and uh, on uh, on the High Truth podcast and with all this connection. I've, you've had, um, I know, I, I've been listening to your show to catch up for, you know, for be able to speak to you, and you've influenced so many people's lives. One of the ladies that, that my when my kids were in, you know, preschool, that it was a little girl who went to the preschool, her mom 
was not Jewish, and she read, actually listened to all your tapes. You used to have tapes. Nobody does tapes anymore. Um, but she bought all the Dennis Prager tapes and ended up converting to Judaism. And now her daughter is, um, you know, uh, an Orthodox uh, woman with kids and, you know, all going back to your tapes. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to I'm going to say something that sounds like I'm bragging. And I understand why people would think that. Um, but I'm not saying it to brag. I'm saying it for people to understand what that story is part of. So I believe, I don't know for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that I, I am responsible for bringing uh, more Americans to Judaism and more Americans back to church than any Jew in the first case and then any living Christian in the other, any living Jew or any living Christian. That is a rare, rare thing to be able to say, that I have brought so many people uh, back to synagogue and so many people back to church. Yeah, or or for the first time, like, you know. Or for the first time, that is yeah. exactly right. That's a thing, it's, yeah. a, it's an excellent correction, yeah. And, yeah. and it, it shows uh, a lot of things, but the, again, it goes back to my theme by using reason, which is rarely used when people make the case for religion. Most religious people will speak mostly about faith. And I speak uh, the language of reason. It doesn't work for everybody, uh, but that's my vehicle and it's the only one I know. Well, it's it's been successful. Touched by the story you told me, thank you. Yeah, no, you've had a, a big influence, like you've mentioned, a, a lot of people's lives. Um, I want to start off with with how I got connected with you again, you know, after all these years and, and books and, and, and stuff is through your wife, Sue. Um, when I was working at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, we got a special request um, to contact someone and I realized who it was. I jumped at the opportunity, wanted to be first to make that connection. Um, and got to talk to Sue, and she shared an article that you wrote about something that was, you know, really affected me, and then affected really drug policy. How these stories are effective, and that was the story you wrote about why my stepson's father killed himself. Um, and uh, maybe you want to, you know, tell the story better for for our listeners. My uh, my stepson's dad, the. the the father of my two stepsons, whom I knew obviously quite well, for quite quite a number of years, uh, fell off uh, a ladder while repairing the roof uh, to his home. As a tragic, tragic accident. He was very handy, but it had been a wet day and it, the ladder slipped. And he fell quite a distance right onto, his body went onto the steps which were at that point, obviously, the sharp parts of the steps were up. They went right into his body. And with all the surgeries and so on, he, he was in horrific pain. And the uh, doctors and hospitals would not prescribe opioids, painkillers, because of all these laws about not getting patients addicted and doctors have a limited 
amount that they can prescribe this to any given patient, apparently, at least in California. And he couldn't he couldn't get access to them. And he he finally killed himself from the pain. And it must be understood, this man had zero suicidal tendencies. He was not a depressed man. He was a, he was a total happy-go-lucky guy. He loved life. He 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 would you know just laugh his way in, in, into into the house when he would visit us and visit his sons who were living with me at the time. It's a, a horrible tragedy. When I spoke at his memorial service, I. I'm a big believer that if there's an elephant in the room, you have to acknowledge its presence. So I spoke about the fact, not just about Bruce, but about the fact that he committed suicide. Because people don't like to mention it. It's like it's a shame. And I said, I just want you all to know, under those circumstances, I would have done the same thing. And I got so much, my wife got so much feedback how it made people feel good to hear that because I'm not exactly a depressed sort. I'm, I, I wake up uh, pre-caffeinated every day. I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. I have a happy nature. I'm a happy disposition, but there are levels of pain that would, I would rationally conclude life cannot be lived like this. And I, I like to know, why can't a man like that get painkillers? I don't know the answer. I just know that there's something wrong in the I, medical I, I world. I actually, actually know the answer. Um, and I, I couldn't tell it to Sue at the time because, you know, you have to be politically correct. You're in the administration. You don't, you know, rock the boat. But um, the same week that she shared that story, we had someone in our office at, you know, the ONDCP office who's very good friend, um, tragic uh, ending of his life, committed suicide. And it was like, you know, when you see a train about to, you know, to, to hit or a car accident and you, you want to do something, there's nothing you can do. Um, his This colleague at the office came to me, you know, before he died and say, he, he's got this chronic pain. What does he do? Well, he's treated as if he's a drug addict, but, he, but he's not. And, and um I wish I had opportunity to talk to him and, and intervene. And the only thing I was able to tell the person is like, you know, your job is to be a friend, not a doctor, which I think was the right advice. But I wish I, as a doctor, you know, stopped everything I was doing, called and intervened and, and did something. And so I had two people who had the same endings. When you say I don't know why. What you have done? I mean... I'm a doctor. I could call. I could sympathize. I could help. I could find an expert. You know, I could, you know, um, I could offer legitimacy for what their, their pain. I can, you know, not everybody is willing to prescribe. I could find somebody, uh, you know, I could explain the situation. And the backstory to that is we've overcorrected a mistake. So when I was a young doctor, um, I was told, you know, you and your profession in emergency medicine are not doing enough to do for pain. You need to prescribe more. And we overdid it. You know, I'd have people who come into the emergency department and they have like a, what I call a boo-boo on their finger and like, doc, what are you going to give me for pain? And like, whatever, here's some 30 pills, Percocets, have fun. We, we overdid it and people were dying. I mean, we had an opioid prescription problem, which I really felt like I could fix, which is why I wanted that job. And what happened is the government started to play doctor. 
and the Medical Board of California, both these deaths, Booth's death and, and the, the colleague at ONDCP, were both in California. The Medical Board of California decided that they were going to now um, take it into their own hands and uh, sanction doctors for, for prescribing opioids. We, you know, we always get sued. We're gonna, we used to get sued if you don't prescribe, and you know, everybody was prescribing, and then we started getting, you know, pushback from the medical board for prescribing um, too much. So the problem is, was the methodology that they used to do that. They wrote 500 letters sanctioning, um, threatening to take away the license of 500 doctors in the state of California. And they, they went all the way back to, you know, 2004, before, like, the CDC guidelines just came out. Um, and what they did is scare the medical community into not, not prescribing. And the tragedy is you can't get someone up to an opioid level because government got into that, you know, push of you need to prescribe more and then cut people off the next day because then it drives them to this tragedy. And I know exactly the people who have blood on their hands for, for doing that to Bruce and to, to other people um, by cutting them off um, from opioids abruptly like that. And that's just wrong and happens when government plays doctor. Just out of curiosity, is that uh, a California policy or a national policy? Um, it, it's a national policy to push that, but the sending letters to, the, to doctors individually was a California thing. And what happened to the lady who we actually called? I called the lady, I won't say her name, um, who was in charge of the medical board at the time and begged her with other people um, to accept different methodology. You know, I, I studied uh, in San Diego every single person who died of a, pres of a medication, every single one. I looked at a whole years of prescription, did it by hand, and that really taught me about uh, medication safety. Um, because, you know, the worst thing as a doctor you could do is have somebody get hurt or die from something that you did. That's the worst thing. But, you know, as an ER doctor, people ask me, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? It's, it's not what I've seen that's the worst. The worst thing is to think that I have done something wrong to hurt someone. And our whole profession did something wrong at the time. And, and uh, we've since uh, corrected it. But I offered that expertise to the medical board for them to change their methodology of how you know, they were just, you know, if anybody died with their name on the prescription and only in certain areas of Sandy, of, of, um, of, of uh, California, because it was only places that have a medical examiner coroner, which is only like four counties in, in California. So those doctors who live in those big cities got disproportionate number of letters and they got scared. I mean, if your license is in yeah. jeopardy, then what are you supposed to do, you know? It, it, it was a mistake. It was a, it's, um, like I said, they have blood on their hands. They do. I think that uh, they, I think they have blood on their hands. I can't prove it. I'm not a doctor. But I, I think the threatening of doctors to lose uh, their licenses in California, if they prescribed in early COVID, I mean, a person having COVID early on, uh, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine with zinc, threatening those doctors? Oh, no, no, you couldn't. I, I was always laughing because I could not say the word ivermectin. 
<laughs> that's like a taboo word. You know, they could not say that word. But you could like, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that more, but I could say, you know, marijuana all day long. That was an essential service. Um, and you can't say anything bad about marijuana, but if you say the word ivermectin, you know, then, you know, then you're... You know, well, it, it, there's a larger issue here for me <clears throat> that is worth noting here, and that is the what I perceive as the degraded state of American medicine. Uh, that is all new to me. I grew up as a, as a Jew, also almost worshiping doctors. My brother is a prominent physician, a professor of medicine. And uh, I will tell you that what they're doing to kids who say that they're the other sex, what they did in, in, in threatening doctors who wanted to prescribe uh, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine when there's when at worst they're useless and at best they're helpful and i very early on i mean like march uh, or or april of 2020 the late dr victor vladimir zelenko an orthodox jew in new york who was a doctor and who said that he had a thousand patients, I think it was, and hydroxychloroquine with zinc. Uh, I think he lost one person to COVID when COVID was at its at its most ferocious. And the person already had cancer. <laughs> My wife uh, knows more than I do on these matters. Yeah. And, and so I I I thought of what interest would this doctor have, since there's no money in ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, what interest would he have in misleading anybody about this? And I had him on my radio show. He tragically died of cancer. There's a big loss because he, he was a very special human being. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, and then uh, learning the American Medical Association came out a couple of years ago was the official policy is that children's sex not be listed on their birth certificate because they'll choose what they are later. That is the official policy of the American Medical Association. And, and, and it's so funny because so much of disease, what sex you have makes a difference. Right. You know, you're, you're just problem. medically. You're, yes, you're, you're right. That's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm it, thinking. It, it I'm thinking just on in terms of hello. There is truth in life. You don't have to be a doctor to acknowledge there are two sexes, right? But to make the right diagnosis and the right differential yes, diagnosis, right. and point. to understand your symptoms based on your your gender. Right. Well, uh, the CDC now says uh, people who give birth, they do not say pregnant mothers. Uh, they say pregnant people. People who give birth. People. people. Okay. It's not women. All right. I know you talk a lot about language and how language is being altered and how that makes a difference. And and I did notice that you said, you know, that Bruce committed suicide and it didn't use the PC language of, of dying right. by suicide. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was I'm impressed that you, that you listen and, uh, <laughs> and you obviously listen carefully because I have not adopted died by suicide yeah but if you say if i say that wrong you know uh you know you 
in the in the you know in that community it means that you don't care if you don't use that right language well uh, take or, the or case of uh, take the case of the, the dad of my stepsons he i think he would be insulted if it it sounded died by suicide he committed suicide and and he did so voluntarily because the medical profession failed him to say he died by suicide is not nearly as voluntary and powerful an act as he would want it to be known as. Right. But I, I, I guess the people that I, I deal with are, are parents who've children. Yeah, I am, that's true. Suicide. I, I, I know they prefer to say the other. And then I, I'll just honor their language. No, no, that's fine. But you, we look. There isn't a, a one size fits all here. Yeah, uh, I'm a, I'm a public figure talking about suicide. I'm not a doctor counseling a bereaved parent whose child died by suicide. If you would, if if the parent preferred me to say that, I would say that. Yeah, but the, the story uh, of Bruce um, had an impact on me and had an impact on health policy. Um, when it comes to, I, I headed a, a committee on safe prescribing, and, and again, that's very you know dark reminder of going too far. As a matter of fact, yesterday I was on a call with officials from Israel, and in Israel, I was always kind of wondering what drug problems are happening there, and their biggest problem now is fentanyl, not illicit fentanyl, but prescription fentanyl, and really? they're yeah, and um, and so their solution. Again, it takes me back because we just solved this problem in the United States. They're just getting this problem by, you know, overprescribing uh, um, on their, the medical community is to really shut down and control the doctors. And I said, wait, be careful that you don't, you know, push people to commit suicide um, because you've cut them off of opiates. You can't do that. You have to make you have to you have to get a balance. You know, you, you and, and, and titrate them and, and get their medicines as best as possible to keep them alive, and at the same time prevent a new generation of becoming addicted. And that's how we tackled and ended the prescription opioid epidemic. Sadly, we opened up on other problems. But um, my son, Oren, has a question for you. He was very, you know, he's so sweet. He's like, you know, Ima, he's called me mom. He's so excited for me that you're on my show, which is very sweet from an adult adult uh, uh, young man. Um, and so he called in a question for the show. And uh, he is a father to a, uh, my first uh, granddaughter, um, one and a half years old, expecting number two soon. And his question is, regarding the issue of drugs, what is the best way of protecting kids and raising kids who um, are not exposed or get addicted to drugs besides, you know, of course, uh, you know, the genetic things. Well, I, I happen to know a lot about this uh, for personal reasons. I, not that I, I, I never took one. I have no inclination toward it, but uh, the best, I'll, I'll give you two anecdotes on the, to answer your son's question. One is, I actually pose this on my radio show. I have learned an immense amount from my listeners because you know, the variety of people who call in is truly, in a sense, humanity. So I once asked for a whole hour, I did this topic, 
if you didn't take drugs when you were in high school or college, but but I think I, I it was mostly high school, why didn't you? Everybody asks, why did you? But I wanted to know, why didn't you? And virtually every caller said, because my mother would have killed me. Parents uh, need to make it clear that obviously, not literally, will kill you. Uh, you'll be thrown out of this house. You'll be on the street. They have to be as severe as possible in their threats with regard to a kid starting on drugs. Uh, I personally loathe marijuana. It's funny you mentioned it earlier. Uh, here is one of the handful of issues that most of my listeners have never agreed with me, which is fine with me. Uh, but uh, I have said all of my career, I would much prefer that my teenage child smoked cigarettes than smoked a joint. And you, you would be medically correct to say that. Well, um, they think they are medically incorrect because but, they say, you know, tobacco kills you, which is. All but that's is. that's because. All right, let's get into the marijuana discussion. But you would be medically and scientifically correct to say, well, first of all, why would you have to choose? I don't want you to smoke this and I don't want you to smoke that. Right. They, but it's, it's the marijuana filled, industry that. But clarity comes from comparisons. That's that's the only reason I raise it. Okay, but because uh, I would prefer you not put anything in your lungs that's not healthy. But they've actually done studies. They've taken CAT scans of people who smoke cigarettes and people who smoke uh, marijuana, and the CAT scans of people who smoke marijuana are worse. That's number uh, one. That I now, didn't even know that. My argument was not uh, health. My argument was mental health. Right, and then you know, and that's the other point. Besides your lung health, that's one one thing. Um, yes, you know, you get cancer, and I know you love cigars. So you well, know, they're you not inhaled. I I chose the tougher one, cigarettes. There's no, if to me, there's no issue on cigars. Oh, but just but for the, the record, that, I, uh, I just I, I I cigars are not inhaled. I I I think three quarters of doctors don't know that. I, I didn't like just it. learn that. I didn't know that. I'll drive you crazy. <laughs> but but you you teach people right, so we're there. Right. No. 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 I know. Yes. God bless you for your for your honesty. But anyway, I I chose cigarettes because they are inhaled, and I know they're dangerous. Right. So, yeah, but the I, point is, you know that danger. People and like your listeners say, well, but that can gives you everybody knows it can cause cancer and lung disease and emphysema. And, and we've seen those videos with people with a trach and and cigarettes are horrible. Right. Um, what, what, but for marijuana, all you're seeing is how good it is and it's healthy and it's a plant. We haven't learned from history. And I know that you're, the, you know, the greatest, you know, um, person in as far as learning from history, but we are repeating history again when it comes to marijuana. Not everybody who smokes gets lung cancer. Not everybody who smokes marijuana is going to get schizophrenia. But one in five, with especially with a high percentage and low, I mean, that's, that's, that's significant. And I like to talk about marijuana because it's, it's hidden from the public. Um, and I want, and I think you want to, people to make informed decisions when it comes to their health, and yet we're not getting that with marijuana. My wife just handed me another uh, argument to make to uh, people, young people, starting contemplating starting drugs. No, 
You started at age five. You start telling them. You start at age five. She said she's adamant. Yeah, yeah. No, I tell and, people. And wait, let, me, start, let me just give you, you the start argument. Start when you're pregnant. She right? You start with your pregnant. She has an. She has a. Yeah. Well, you can't talk to your uh, fetus, but uh, okay. All right. Oh God. <laughs> hey. uh, her argument, and it's accurate, is all drug users have a lot of blood on their hands because of the cartels. You, you, you're you're financing death. Murder, death, mayhem, and of course, death of others. The gang members. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's. Are creating the market. You're creating the market to make that these people. The murder and mayhem. Right. Right. We're all over the place. I want to um, get, get back to what you know. Protect kids. Basically, oh, yeah. you said so, so have, have a mother who 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 you're scared of. <laughs> That's right. Yes. By the way, there's a that that is why I def, you know I'm writing this commentary on the first five books of the Bible, the rational Bible, it's called, and there is a law there. It's fascinating. People hate it. It's, they don't know about it, but when they hear it, they hate it. Uh, it's a law in the Torah. The Torah, the first five books. All the laws of the Bible are in the Torah. The first five books. One of them is a person shall fear his mother and father. The only we're only supposed to fear God and our parents. And the calamity of the last 50 years is that parents fear kids much more than kids fear parents. In a nutshell, if, the, if I had to describe the calamity of the last 50 years, kids, and I don't mean quake that they'll beat you up. Obviously, I don't mean that for anybody who needs clarification. And the Torah says about you fear like you fear God, this, that type of fear. It's an awe. Well, no, it's fear. Uh, yep, yeah. yeah, it's that's the word, uh, and I believe in it. I, I, I wish Stalin feared God. I wish Hitler feared God. Mm -hmm. I wish I wish all people who do bad feared God. There, uh, a, a a professor, uh, I cite it uh, in an article I wrote. Uh, did a very interesting survey, and he's not religious, and he found that. Where people believe in hell is much less crime. <laughs> yes, if there are no consequence to what you do. Deterrence, absolutely. Yes, deterrence, that's we right. We need deterrence yes. in everything. I think that policy in the United States now is that everybody has the right peace and the right motives. If we're spending most of our energy on the few people who have a, a harsh problem and almost no energy kind of like I said, how we tackled the opioid prescription, but how do we create a next generation of Americans who are not getting into drugs in the first place? We're really ignoring that primary prevention. Like Sue, your very smart wife said at age five, or I say, you know, you know, age appropriate, whatever, you know, you know, when you're, when you're pregnant, you, you're, you're careful what you eat and not smoke and, and, and drink. Um, that can, that continues in primary prevention. People now want to talk about how do we prevent fentanyl, and that's downstream prevention. That's okay. Of course, we need to do that. People are, you know, in San Diego County, two and a half deaths a day. We have a whole airplane a day. We're, we're, we're under a terror attack of an airplane a day now of people dying from fentanyl. It, it's un, unfathomable. We need the same approach that we did for COVID for fentanyl. <laughs> you know, people was like, fentanyl, fentanyl. I mean, COVID, COVID, COVID for two years. And I was saying fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. Um, but but to get a hold of that, we need to work 
upstream, right? You could keep, you know, tr saving one life at a time. That's important, reversing people with naloxone. People have gotten, you know, tens of naloxone at a time or going upstream. And upstream from fentanyl is marijuana because every single person I talk to who's taken fentanyl or overdosed on purpose or by accident started priming their brain at a young age from fentanyl. And upstream from marijuana is emotional resiliency. How do we teach people to deal with life's problems without resorting to drugs? Um, so I think, you know, if, if I had to do one thing, it would be a lot more investment in, in primary prevention and emotional resiliency at age five and stuff. And there's actually prevention science, doubly controlled, blind, placebo studies in, in population base where kids have received this type of education and kids who did not receive that kind of education. And downstream, you see better grades, less violence, um, better um, and less drug use. So that works. What, what I was thinking, kind of listening to your show, and you talk a lot about the, the left and there's a lot of evil in our society trying to destroy America from the left. And I'm wondering if the whole movement to normalize drug use and push drug use, and we're seeing that a lot in our society, comes from that same left. Um, George Soros funded um, marijuana legalization, um, uh, normalization of drug use, um, uh, demonize the D.A.R.E. program, you know, when you had people come to the schools and say, don't use drugs. That's been demonized by studies funded from um, George Soros. But, you know, I was at the United Nations this year, and, and that same Drug Policy Alliance followed by, you know, Soros says their motto is, you have your wine, I'll have my line, like line of cocaine. They really want to normalize um, drug use, and that, you know, again, speaks to the, the problems that we have in our society with drugs. I, I hadn't actually attached the drug issue to uh, the destruction of society agenda. I just want to say a word about that destruction of society agenda. Those who know what the left teaches in schools, and by the way, I always draw a distinction between left and liberal, Liberals vote left, but they don't have left-wing values. They vote for the opposite of their values. That's that's a political separate issue. Uh, but the left does not hide the fact that they would like to undo the United States of America. So uh, this is not a charge. It's a fact that that is that is the ultimate aim. They loathe Western civilization. Jesse Jackson in the 1970s, I believe it was, participated in a march at Stanford University and the meme of the march, the motto, the slogan was, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. That's, that, is, that is their belief. Capitalism, rational thought, individuality, hard work, these are all forms of white supremacy, and they must be eradicated. Well, that takes us to my son Oren's other question for you. He had multiple part questions. Nice. Um, uh, he uh, mentioned the normalization of drug use, not just marijuana, but psychedelics and, and even hard drugs. And he sees that 
at the same time he's seeing increasing um, mental health crisis, especially in young people. And his question for you is, you know, do you see this association? Is it a philosophical shift? Is it a political shift? Or is it just addiction for profit? It's all of them. Look, when I, when I was a kid, uh, drugs were very popular. LSD, which is not as popular today, psychedelics, uh, heroin, all, all of them. There was a real popularity with regard to drugs. And I remember thinking, why, why are they doing this? And my answer is rarely given. But I am, I was, I believed it then, and I believe it now. Boredom. Secular, affluent society produces bored people. Religious people are not bored, and poor people are not bored. Poor people are not bored because they're too worried about providing dinner for their family that night or getting dinner for themselves. And religious people are not bored because their lives are filled with their religious convictions and, and practices and church, synagogue and Bible study and, and practices and rituals. I mean, it's, it's a full life. So the combination of secularism and affluence produces boredom and boredom produces the yearning for excitement. I remember, I, I haven't actually, I've, not, I've told this privately to people, but I don't think I've ever said this publicly. I don't know why, but I haven't, because I, 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 I'm pretty aware of what I say. So I remember when friends of mine in college would say, Dennis, let me tell you something. If, you, if you're going to do it, if you're going to have sex, do it while you're high. It is so much better. And I remember my reaction like it was yesterday. I thought, wait a minute. You're 23. You need some high addition. Sex is not a big enough high. The pursuit of the high, the pursuit of adrenaline, of excitement, is a... Is a outgrowth of secularism and affluence. And that, I believe, was a huge factor in why my generation, the, the boomer generation, started in with drugs. That may be true, or, you know, partly true. How can I dare disagree with Dennis Prager? But I, what you I've can. seen... Can. So can I give you an, an alternate sure. view of what I'm seeing a lot is um, covering up pain. Covering up pain. It, um, I, and uh, that, well, that's why, forgive me, that is why pain. I said my generation. I, I yeah. think today uh, it is, it is a, there are different ideologies, to use a science word, uh, causes for, for uh, the, the, the desire to, to take drugs. I think that that's correct, what you said. I, I know it's correct, in fact. Yeah. But there was not, this was not a pained generation. Right. This was the most spoiled, right. affluent generation in American history. Yeah. So now there's, well, you know, feeling entitled, making it easy, 
um, everybody gets a trophy kind of generation. And then, you know, life is hard. And right. if you don't learn how to deal with those obstacles yeah. at a young age, no, you can't have that cookie now. You're going to have to wait till after supper or whatever. Um, then, then when you get to struggles, you know, one, one said he got into drugs when uh, he was going to the prom with a group of guys and he was very nervous. And one of the dads said, oh, you're nervous? Use some marijuana. And then they use it. And, and guess what? It helps. You know, on the short and short term, it helps. You drink alcohol, you use drugs, whatever. It helps short term. And then and there's the, the problems um, later on. So I think in today's society, kids have a lot working against them. Um, as far as mental health, which I think has to do a lot of what you talk about, which is just being pride, be prideful of who you are. I don't care who you are. You should always, kids should always be pride of their country, pride of who, their ethnicity, pride of their community. And when you don't have that, especially if you're taught that at a young age, and then covering up the pain um, is another issue. But also we have a push. There is a huge push to use drugs. You know, and you see that with billboards all over the place in marijuana. If you see that the people who come in with an overdose from the emergency department, I'll ask them, what's the first drug you ever used? And they'll say, you know, heroin. I'll say, how old were you? I said, you know, 18. I said, no, what's the first drug you ever used before that? And they'll say, oh, weed? Well, that's just weed. They don't even drug. drug. That's right. That's correct. And then they'll say, I, I was nine years old. It's like. And that's important clinically because if your brain is already primed and since you were nine years old, one week of buprenorphine is not going to fix that. You know, you may need to be on medications longer and, and until your receptors settle down and you may need to be on medicines your whole life, but that's better than being dead um, at that point. Um, but uh, Well, what did all of humanity do, given how painful life has always been, and far more in the past in many ways than in the present. What did they do pre-drugs and, and pre-marijuana and so on? That that's by the way, that is exactly where religion comes in. Well, we always had drugs, right? We have we have alcohol in the Bible, right? We yes, have drugs in the Bible. That, but what's different biggie. now is just the vast quantity right. of it. That's correct. The normalization of it. Um, and the commercialization of it, right? The candies and the drinks and the it's cool and it's on TV. And, um, you know, if you speak against it, it, uh, you know, it's not politically correct, but um, I, it's the right thing to do. So I do. Um, you know, it's always hard to be ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, well said. Yeah. Um, you talk about the left. And when it comes to drugs. I don't meet people who normalize drug use and say, I'm a leftist. I've never met anybody, actually, who say, I'm a leftist. Um, I hear principles. Well, well, you mean they don't use the term? Or yeah, they, they don't use the term. They, are. Oh, they, they don't, use, they the don't term. use the term. They use the term progressive. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's the term. And that's the same thing. They are the same thing, yeah. There's What we have is we have conservative, we have liberal, and we have progressive. And the, the progressive is the, is the euphemism for left. They, they don't say, in the past, they would say they were Marxist. 
but that mark's got a bad name because of the gulag archipelago and 100 million people killed by communism in the 20th century so it it has somewhat of a bad name so they will they will sooner say progressive that that's the term that they will use uh and and they do use that a progressive doctor uh, d- does not believe that sex is binary okay and maybe they normalize drug use or, or promote marijuana. Well, yeah, patients. that I don't know. I, I you opened up my mind to the idea of the of drugs and leftism. Uh, I had not thought of that prior to this conversation, and uh, certainly with marijuana, there there is a, a great openness and celebration of it in you know places like Washington, Oregon. California, much more so than in Alabama and Mississippi. There are people so, where your point who is, are is addicted well to marijuana, and it's their religion. They care about marijuana like you care about God. And if you say anything bad about God, they'd be offended. If you say anything bad, negative about marijuana, they get really, I mean, they take it personally, like like God. Um, and so their they're people are very, very attached to that, right? and, and I see that. Um, Change in language. You talk about, you know, again, listening to your show in preparation, change in language is part of culture. We have that. We talked about that when it comes to, you know, suicide and the language on suicide. Um, There's a a lot of change in language when it comes to drugs. You're not allowed to say drug abuse anymore. That's not PC. It's it's, it's, um, a substance use disorder. Even saying drug misuse. it's just drug use. And, it, and I was, you know, kind of scratch my head. Wait a second. It, it's okay to send a negative message that using drugs is bad. Um, uh, but, you know, that's part of the language. The other language that, that kind of gets me scratching my head is harm reduction. What Harm reduction, I called the head of Health and Human Services and asked, what is the definition of harm reduction? What does that mean? And the definition I was given was something that I agree with would be you're not going to cure the disease you still have the disease but you're going to make it like less harmful Uh, you know and we have that like with cancer you're not going to cure the cancer we can make it you know not progress as much so I kind of agreed with that but then when the administration says makes that definition when it comes downstream to counties they add to it that harm reduction is a social justice movement and then I'm like, well, what does that mean? As a doctor, what does that what does that mean to me? Does that mean needle exchange, which is okay? Or does it mean that I should hate the police or that you should be okay to use fentanyl? I don't know what that means, but it seems like, you know, people who are putting that on their slides know, know what that means, but it doesn't, um, and it seems like a, some type of, you know, they're implying some type of morality there, which uh, is not really clear. Well, what I will say this, what uh, people who call themselves progressives have done is convince themselves that, and, and try to convince others, that drugs is not a moral issue. That, that They have literally demoralized the issue. So you, you can't say it's wrong to take drugs. You could say Maybe it's harmful, or it could lead to harmful, it can might hurt you. But to make a moral claim about drugs 
is not sophisticated. You you would not hear that at Yale. You're you're absolutely right, and that is um, what we generally te- teach in addiction medicine. I also am board certified in addiction medicine that. Um, using drugs or be, having an addiction is not a moral failing, and, and I, I do agree with that. If you if you have the genetic propensity to, for alcohol, that that's that's part of you. It's not a moral failing, but you have a disease. Well, yeah, it's okay. Not, it's so not okay. I, okay, right? I know a lot about this because it hit home. My my second son, uh, his uh, late mother and I adopted him when at birth. We did not know this until later, but his his birth mother was a meth addict. Which is, by the way, incorrect lingo, Dennis, to call What's the the lingo? The lingo is somebody with a methamphetamine use disorder. Okay. Uh, I'll I'll stick to meth addict. (laughs) We're all entitled, at least for the time being. Yeah. There's still some free speech left. And uh, so he taught me. I learned a lot about addiction. So what you said about the genetic propensity, I agree with with regard to alcohol. There are, it's been demonstrated. I mean, there there are young people or old people, some any age, they will take a drink and then they will want another drink and another drink and another drink. And others are totally satisfied with one end of issue. I, I get that. But that's not the same thing as drugs. Everybody has a beer. Everybody has a glass of wine. Some people will want 10 glasses of wine and 10 beer beer cans. So I, I get it. I think that there is, well, is... Well, Dennis, the same thing is with, like, opiates. You'll And we learned this from, at the time, my kids would, like, you know, my husband's a dentist, right? They all, like, had to put their wisdom teeth out. And they'll say, ooh, does that mean I get oxy? They already knew. And there are, you know, hundreds of kids who get an oxycodone after their wisdom teeth and nothing, and then one who gets it, and it, it turns on something on in the brain, just like you described with alcohol, that are like, wow, this is amazing. Same same phenomenon. Right. When I was saying drugs, I was thinking of things like heroin. The uh, So that is a willful decision. That's not a genetic predisposition, because all of us would get addicted to heroin whereas not all of us will get addicted to alcohol. I, I, I fully acknowledge that. So the choice to start in with uh, narcotics, if that's the per- correct term, that is a moral issue. Don't, don't start. That's wrong. That the doctor gave you OxyContin to take out your wisdom tooth, uh, and that triggered a reaction. I must have another one. That, that's not the same issue. Right. And and if we're doing that, a lot of people, like I said, have, have started these days. Most people who've, who've ended up with fentanyl or methamphetamine started out with, with marijuana. Um, the, the moral failing is really part of what they call the stigma campaign in addiction medicine. We want to eliminate stigma. That also, I feel, is getting to a slippery slope. We don't want somebody with a substance use disorder addiction um, to feel, you know, we want them to get better, but we don't want to stigmatize the person, you know, you idiot, you know, why are you a meth addict? You know, you should just quit. Um, You want to have compassion a person who has a medical condition. And I do think addiction is a medical condition. But on the other hand, 
the stigma campaign has gone too far to normalize drug use. Mm -hmm. Still want people, there still needs to be, I know you're going to agree with me on this, to be able to say no. Like we teach kids at a very young age, you know, don't get near the hot fire. There are things can teach, but we need to teach and say no. And drugs is one of them. And the whole issue on eliminating stigma and not having the moral failing has, has had the slippery slope of normalizing drug use. It's not like stigma has died. You're stigmatized if you think it's wrong for a biological male to compete with women in women's sports. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of stigma in society, ironically. Just well, I, use it, I don't have to go that far. I say stigma. There's stigma to tobacco. You're a smoker. Ew, go smoke somewhere else. That's such an excellent point. That's right. Right. So we, we use stigma as a tool of deterrence. And the problem with the stigma campaign is that um, it's gone too far to eliminate the deterrence of, of using yeah. drugs. That's, it's an That's important right. tool, especially for young right. kids. Well said. Yeah. Um, so speaking of deterrence, law enforcement, law enforcement, you told, you talked about cartels. What are your views on law enforcement's role in drugs, illicit drugs? So is the question, should it be illegal? Is that, or, or should law enforcement be used at all? We should do everything possible to stem the tide, the, the import through our borders, for example, of fentanyl. I mean, that there should be draconian punishments. A porous border is an invitation to more fentanyl use. Uh, the, the notion, if it worked, I was open. I must say, I was open to the idea, look, uh, they said the war on drugs is not working. Make it legal. People will not kill them to get money for for their next heroin. Uh, dose, and it it made it, it sounded good, but the places that have legalized it are not benefiting. All it does is increase the use, and it will never end the illegal because the illegals will up the ante. They'll make it more powerful. They'll make it uh, uh, more desirable. So it, we certainly have learned this. I, I don't remember. Who, was, I think it was the Wall Street Journal had a big article recently that uh, a, a lot of places like Philadelphia that have been completely legalizing marijuana are starting to regret it. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, it's been a, a public health disaster. Um, but, uh, you, you know, you mentioned a lot of things that we've come to assume is, is correct just because uh, I think it was on one of your recent uh, shows, you say, if you say it enough, it becomes true. People believe it. And the same yep. phrase of the war on drugs. So it's like, oh, well, you know, the war on drugs failed. But it, did it? Is that is that mean you don't fight at all to, mm -hmm. on the war on drugs? That's right. And That's so it. I'm part of uh, Families Against Fentanyl. And uh, that organization represents, uh, you know, young people who died were died, killed, murdered by fentanyl. That, they they right. didn't have a substance use disorder. They were tricked. That, that's um, right. And we want to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. And when um, James Rowell, who leads the organization, was telling me about how he traced his son's phone where he got the fentanyl to China, I was thinking about how Israel deals with terrorist organizations 
and traces them and get traces that act of terror to where it came from and, and gets them at, at their money and their supply and that that in the same way by declaring fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction we um, attack because I mean you know a hundred thousand deaths a day some pe some of those a year, are people, a year a year you're right a year thank you but some of those are people who have a substance disorder but some of them are are not um, and and I feel like we're under siege and and we should be um, be acting tougher on drugs than, than we are right now. I'm actually surprised we don't have more outrage. It is a good question why we don't. There's certainly a lot of outrage against tobacco. <laughs> well, I, I always say follow the money. There's money to have outrage on tobacco because all that tobacco settlement money went to the truth campaign. And so they're being, you know, so there's funding to go to that. Now, if you trace the money of where where you know drug money is there there's a lot of addiction for profit uh, all around well um, aren't most of the hundred thousand young people um the the average on fentanyl on fentanyl on fentanyl it, it, it depends it depends on like pills or powders the people who die with the pills tend to be younger the people who die from the powder tend to have a substance use disorder and they tend to they tend to be older people who have a substance use disorder more in the you know f f age average age of 40 or 50 okay um, so in either case i just want to note that tobacco didn't kill young people <laughs> tobacco kills people 60 and over and by the way just for the record the american lung association which hates tobacco has said one out of three cigarette smokers eventually die of lung cancer or, or heart disease. So two-thirds don't, and that's, that's one side factor. But the bigger factor is the age. It, look, I'm an older person. <laughs> I, it, I haven't lost my mind. It's a bigger tragedy if you die at 20 than if you die at 70. I mean, it's just that... Yeah. yeah, more lives lost by if you die at seven. Yes, that's, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Fentanyl is is largely, even if it's 40, it's a young person killer. It, is, is it, by the way, you, you, I assume you would know, but maybe you don't. Uh, I don't know. Is it the biggest killer now of young people? It's the number one source of death ages 18 to 45. Yeah, okay. Number one. So more your, than your COVID, and I always said that, more than COVID. Your question, you know, of course, well, well yeah. it's not even And car accidents, and yeah. suicides, and homicides, yeah. and gun right. violence. Right, right, right. So you you asked, why isn't there more outrage? I don't I don't have an answer. Yeah. Well, I, I studying history. My intro to this show, I'll be I'll like intimidated whether you would like it or agree. But I thought of like you know if you had a Prager you. Thinking, okay, if we did a PragerU on drugs, what would Dennis like, you know, want to hear? So I try to think of um, taking the learning from history. Um, you know, well, I, I would, I would want to give the message about the infliction of pain on this planet that you do if you choose to take a drug. That uh, it's never put that way. It, it's always put, well, you know, it, it could hurt well, you. I, I've, I've tried that argument with people, especially from California. Do you know how much land, public lands, we love our land. We love the environment, right? 
people, the, their, the environment is their religion. The amount of water, land, public lands that's being destroyed by illegal marijuana grows in the state is no, I have no idea. Astronomical. Hmm. A, a a marijuana plant. I don't remember the numbers. So I don't want to say it wrong, but it, it's uh, you know several times more than watering a plant. Um, cleaning up a grove, uh, an illegal grove of marijuana is like cleaning up an oil spill out in the ocean. Um, we th this marijuana is destroying our land. Um, and there, it's amazing talking to some of the environmentalists, uh, um, some endangered species that are, you know, killed by the pesticides used to grow these lands. So I say that because I don't think using that argument, we've tried that. It's not what, I don't know, it's ignored. So you think, so you think the, the land <laughs> for, the, for the environment lovers, fine, I'll be happy to use, I'll use any argument. Yeah. But I, I have, I have found in my life that over the long run the truth uh, is is the most powerful weapon you are subsidizing vast amount of human suffering when you buy a drug death rape torture broken broken homes i i don't i think i learned from covid do you remember at the beginning of COVID, people would say, wear a mask, not for you, but for someone else? Yeah, but that wasn't true. But but what, regard, let's say true, it was. That, that, let's, that's why that argument it, stank. It uh, was a lie. But let's say it was true. First okay, of all, if we, it was true, I would have worn a mask. No, but if I, I got out of it, it's is that people don't care. That you have to wear a mask for yourself because you care about yourself. So with the drug arguments, you could say, you're destroying other people. You're harming the. You're right. You know, it's not. You're right. For a lot of people, it'd be uh, so. Yes. My argument for young people is it would be is yes. selfish. It's like you need to protect your brain. It's for you. You you get you have only one brain. Right. You know. I'm not, it, I'm not sure any argument works well. I think punishment yeah. works. Deterrence works, but uh, scared of your mother works. <laughs> scared of your mother works. My my history. Uh, lesson is learning from tobacco, opioids, and marijuana. And the pattern historically that I see for, for all those things is number one, medical. You know, tobacco is helpful, helps you relax, helps anxiety. Opioids are good, more easy, even better. Marijuana would, you know, cures everything and helps all these diseases that without, you know, the randomized control studies to say so, it's just pushed as a matter of benefit. Then they increase the potency because it's addiction for profit, and the more potent, the more nicotine is in tobacco, the more it's addicting, the more opioids you take, and the morphine equivalence goes up. And we've done the same thing with marijuana. We advertise for children, because if you advertise to children, then you've got a consumer for life, and that makes more money. Then that people deny the health claims, and we're seeing that now with marijuana. No, you know, we're saying, you know, emergency department visits, 37. I do not, there's not a single day I'd walk into the emergency department today, I worked it right before coming onto the show, um, and I'll see marijuana poisoning every single shift. So there's a denial of that, and then there's the lawsuits, right? Then come the lawsuits, lawsuits against big tobacco, against big pharma with opioids, and it's just a matter of time where we see that from from marijuana. I thought that would be a history lesson. Would you would you have that on your Prager show? Your Prager? Yeah, yeah, I think we would. Well, we should talk about that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so marijuana, my big thing with marijuana, people think like you're a prohibitionist, you just don't like marijuana. 
I've been accused about that. And, and it's it's not. I'm, I'm a doctor and I want you to make a calculated decision when it comes to your health, um, whether it's tobacco or, or drugs. And what's, what's different, why I talk about marijuana more, is because those risks are not um, – are not out there for people to know. So one of, one of my, my my argument was always about the effect on the brain. You know the medical ill effects of marijuana, which is much stronger today than when I started my arguments. But when people would say, "Well, then are you against people drinking?" And I personally don't drink, but not only because I don't enjoy it, not because I'm against it. I don't care if people drink as long as they don't they don't get become an alcoholic. But I did always ask this question. If you knew that your pilot on your next trip on a plane uh, had a martini or a joint before the flight, which would you worry more about? That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. And and people who work the dispensaries, they would tell you a joint because they know what they're Exactly. Starting. I knew then. <laughs> of course, I saw my friends. Yeah. I saw who had a glass of wine. Nothing happened. The guy who had a joint, he was so mellow, you know. He, 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 right. And the mellowness is the old fashioned 3%, you know, yes, 50 gram yes, joint. Right. Now people who are taking the really high concentrate, you know, talk to traffic cops. These are people going 120 miles an hour. Um, or, or, or they 35 miles an hour. Not the 35, right? And, and they're coming extremely agitated with, you know, and delirious yeah. because of that, the high potency. Yeah. Um, well, you, you convinced me we should do a PragerU video on marijuana. Yay. <laughs> you did a good job. Well, you're a joy. You're um, a joy. So thank you so much. Uh, my, if you my, were my the Surgeon General or drugs are, maybe that's not a fair question for you, but what what would you do? I would go on a massive campaign like they did with tobacco of of just you know billboards and pictures and 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 death death scenes and and whatever they did with tobacco which I thought was somewhat misguided because you, you don't lose your mind smoking cigarettes some of the greatest minds in history had a two packs a day they may have died of lung cancer at, at yeah. 70 or 60 uh, or never, uh, but it did. It certainly did not affect their mind. Marijuana does, right? But I, I don't want to be Surgeon General. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, that's not my calling. Not your calling. Well, your your calling is bringing clarity. Clarity. That's right. If they bringing had a clarity czar, clarity czar, I, I, I would put my name and in. a truth czar. Yeah. Um. But uh, speaking of truth. One of the things that the current Surgeon General declared is medical misinformation as a health hazard. You know, what's going on here? Because in order to combat misinformation, the way you do that is with more information, not censorship. Right. Every uh, dictator has used the term misinformation to suppress dissent. That's another subject for... Another time. Don't don't yeah. start me on that one. All right. All right. I really, really appreciate this yeah, conversation. My joy. A Prager you on marijuana. Absolutely awesome. And uh what is what is your advice for someone who's been doing this for for many years and 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 talks for a living? 
What is my advice to to someone to us, to, to us, to you to us, doing to a you. podcast? Yeah. What you need uh, is, uh, if you're talking about getting getting greater numbers, yeah, is that what you're you're asking, or or the nature of a podcast? Whatever advice, because I'm like too newbie to even know what to ask. Uh -huh. I do it because I I feel like I get guests yes. like you, and I can influence people. That's right. Well, you are. I didn't have a you big are. following, and and, and and you just try to get it out there, and eventually you will find your your public. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. Well, I so I really luck. appreciate you, and uh, next time you're in San Diego. Um, love to meet you in person again. <laughs> it would be lovely. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaac1.org that's i-a-s-i-c-1.org to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding listen to their speaker series and follow the science on marijuana high truth producer is dave revis from davy boy productions i am your host dr Onit lev we hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths mm -hmm.